Hello and welcome to Say That Again Slowly, the Cambridge Festival podcast where students at Cambridge University chat with the experts who've contributed to the festival. We try to pair up students with researchers and authors from very different disciplines to bring things back to basics. There are no stupid questions here. My name is Sophie Carlin. I'm a second year undergraduate English literature student. You know, in our current historical moment, we seem to be beset by endless global concerns, um, including climate change, biodiversity, and most recently the pandemic, of course. Um, And Mike Berners-Lee's book, There Is No Planet B, updated in 2021 to include the global issues that have developed since its first publication two years ago, crunches the numbers, which are consistently shocking and interesting, um, and gives a practical course of action for the environmentally concerned reader. Um, Mike Berners-Lee is a professor at Lancaster University's Lancaster Environment Centre, where his research includes sustainable food systems and carbon metrics. He's also the founder of Small World Consulting, which works with organisations on carbon management and their responses to the climate emergency, and also coordinates global futures events, which are open to all and explore global challenges in multidisciplinary ways. Um, So welcome, Mike. Thank you for agreeing to come along today. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Um, So I guess a good place to start is, um, you know, two years after the book was first published, you've decided to update it and kind of add some information about protests and Extinction Rebellion. Um, And you kind of explain your motivations behind this in the opening of your book. But I was wondering if you could kind of clarify for our listeners, why did you kind of feel the need to return to this project and update it to kind of reflect the new concerns of the last kind of two years or so? Well, it's not just concerns, there's also some positive developments over that period of time. I mean, it's a very fast moving agenda, actually. Mm. The great crisis is getting ever more critical, but um, there's this kind of race between tipping points. On the one hand, the science is getting scarier and scarier. And on the other hand, the evidence that humans are actually beginning to wake up is much stronger than it was when the book first came out. So I felt that it uh, it demanded a refresh. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I have a couple of kind of um, questions about the content of the book as well that I kind of um, was sort of musing about when I was reading it. Um, so you give an anecdote at one point about a colleague of yours um, who at work kind of spoke about setting up sustainability policies all in terms of kind of money and image but that you found out that in a private context, he didn't believe that at all. And he was just kind of speaking that way because that's how people speak at work. You know, that's how things are done. So I was wondering how you think we can kind of change workplace language and culture to facilitate a more positive, productive conversation about the climate emergency, because this seems to be a problem with kind of workplace rhetoric here. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. So, you know, in Small World, we're working with all kinds of organisations or on all kinds of different places in their journey. And some of them are really taking on the climate and wider environmental emergency and saying, like, how can we holistically deal with this? And Mm. and some of the others, well, increasingly, we're we're actually refusing to work with organisations that are less far down the line than that. But one of the, I think one of the critical factors is there are, is, is the extent to which people are encouraged to bring their whole selves to work. So mm. at one extreme, you've got, you've got people who, you know, feel as though they will have their careers sidetracked if they ever talk about anything other than the maximizing profit for the, for the business. At the yeah. other extreme, you have organizations where there really is genuine permission. People feel they can say whatever feels important. They can bring mm. all their Values to the workplace, and I I just think in today's world that is critically important for 
every workplace. So, you know, anyone who's listening to this who either goes to work, you know, either is an employee or an employer or both, should be thinking, how can I, how can I help to open up the space so that everybody can, you know, really bring to the table the most important issues that are on their mind? Mm, yeah, absolutely. So kind of continuing in that vein of, you know, talking about the climate emergency in the workplace, you know, there's going to be a lot of um, students listening to this interview today um, who might be thinking about graduate jobs. Um, mm. So I was wondering if you were going to kind of speak to those students and give them some advice about what their considerations should be if they're wanting to get a job that is kind of as conducive to being kind to the environment as possible, kind of what sort of things should you consider when you're trying to consider what industry to go into? Well, it's a completely different context now from the one that I launched into after, you know, after my degree, for example. So, you know, there is no room in the world now for any business that primarily exists to make profit. Every business has to exist primarily for the health of people and planet in some way or other, however indirectly. And if that's not the case, it shouldn't be there. And no graduate coming out of any university should go and work for a business that is primarily just about profit. Right? Mm. We're fragile for that. And the, all those businesses end up doing damage. And we've seen that you know, so many times. We work uh, for asset managers looking at companies in their portfolios now. And, you know, uh, there are so many organizations that look okay. When, you know, they sound okay. Mm. Then you lift up the bonnet and you find in almost always, you find that profit-driven organizations, when you lift up the bonnet, there's something really nasty in there, even if it's something you can, you can disguise. So I think, it's, I think there's a, it's a totally different workplace that young people are coming into now. It's yeah. a massive responsibility. Careers should not be thought about in the same way that it was normal to think about careers when I entered the workplace. Mm. And uh, it's just, you know, humanity is at such a critical moment. These few years now, I'm talking the first half of this decade, you know, are I think they're make or break years. Right. And everybody needs to get that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think I suppose that's kind of reflected in your book as well, because I think on the title page, you talk about the make or break years, you know, there's a real sense of urgency for this thing that has seemed latent for kind of a long time, yeah. but is suddenly coming upon us. In Yeah, and I, I, I don't use that phrase lightly. You know, when I, you know, I, you know, I was reasonably interested in environmental stuff when I left university, but it was peripheral to almost everybody's agenda and it didn't seem quite so central humanity doing all the right things 30 years ago 35 years ago but and you're doing all sorry doing all the wrong things 30 years ago to take us into a bad place but okay. we hadn't really in some ways we hadn't yet really scaled up the you know and industrialized the, the scale and the speed of smashing mm. the planet up right in yeah. a way we're doing it now yeah uh so you know, it's, we've had a few decades of not doing life in a, in a way that fits our context. Like we're in the Anthropocene now, we're a very powerful species on a small, fragile planet. Mm. 
I think about how we do life has been honed in a previous era in which we were a small species on a big, robust planet. Mm. And we haven't yet made the adjustment to that change of context. And we've had a few decades of being able to get away with that, with living in a way that's unfit for the situation we're in. But we're at the moment where if this crunch point is right now, we don't make that transition, we will really suffer for it, all of us. And yet it's kind of frustrating because what's not to like about making that transition, if we do it cleverly, it'll just be a, it'll be a quality of life opportunity as well as an environmental necessity. I mean, it's just, you know, it takes a bit of habit changing and it's some flexibility of mind, but mm. there's nothing not to like about it. Yeah, yeah, I was really intrigued by your um, kind of suggestion in the book that life can be better than ever before if we make this transition, you know, that you talk about the air will be fresher, we'll have like jobs that are more fulfilling. And I really appreciated this kind of bird's eye view that you took of the issue, like everything being extremely interlinked in that way. And is, is that maybe a kind of a perspective change that we all need to have that the kind of ripple effect of our actions, as, as you called it? Yeah, I mean, you've nailed it. It's perspective change. We need to stand back uh, uh, and you know reconsider the whole situation. We don't spend enough time imagining how things could be better mm. in terms of quality of life and in terms of the environment and what that future vision could look like. We seem to spend more time worrying about you know, the problems with it, like how are we going to keep our houses warm and how are we going to get to other parts of the world that we fancy going to and stuff like that. Mm. You know, so we downside maybe, but what we don't, we don't spend enough time looking at, at how this could be um, you know, this could be a real opportunity unless we've got a strong vision for it. Um, we're, we're, we're not sufficiently able to get excited by it. And, you know, it, it's the people, it's, it tends to be the people with the most imagination and the, and the biggest thinking that are able to get their heads around um, the challenges we face. Cause as you also mentioned, you know, it's an incredibly multidisciplinary systemic challenge. Mm. So we're good looking at, climate change when, when, when on its own when a business comes to us saying oh yeah you know we um we we want to um you know we want to cut our carbon in a paris aligned way we say to them do you mean you want your business to make an appropriate response to the climate and environmental crisis that we're facing and if they say yes we say okay let's have a look at what it would look like because this obviously has implications for everything this organization thinks, says, and does. And soon we're into an agenda, not just about tackling the physical side of this, you know, the direct things like what's our carbon footprint and, you know, you know, what are we doing for, for biodiversity and stuff, but also what's our social impact, what's our political impact, what's our cultural impact, all those just, I say just as important, probably more important, things and and even beyond that questions like how can we help to create a culture in which truth is in which people can see the difference between fact and fiction mm. and care about the difference between fact and fiction so yeah. that we have more fact and how can we also have an environment in which all people are equally respected wherever they are in the world because it looks increasingly critical that we have to have that yeah. way that we've humans have been able to get away without operating from that value set a lot of the time. 
Mm. And it's crystal clear that we're going to be in a lot of trouble if we can't cultivate that universal value of respect. Yeah, absolutely. So kind of given the, the scope of this issue and, you know, like how far reaching it is into all kind of dimensions of life, really, did writing this book energise you or did it exhaust you? Um, because you know as you say there is kind of a positive aspect to it in that there's a prospect of a future that's better than ever before but also we're kind of mired in these statistics that are extremely frightening Um, so I just kind of wondered what the process of writing about a topic like this was like. Well it was pretty interesting it was a mixture of energizing and draining I suppose I mean I I felt that a book like this had to be written by somebody right should have already been by somebody you know something that puts everything in one place in one short readable accessible um entertaining but deadly serious read that covered not just the physical stuff but just importantly all the kind of social political economic stuff you know Mm -hmm. and put it all in one place because that's what we need to do we need to carry it all around in one place so i knew what the qualities of this book needed to be the only question was whether I was capable of writing it or not (laughs) (laughs) so it took you know it took actually a few years of germinating you know just chewing over the concept and Mm. being a publisher thank you Cambridge University Press who was able to say to me yeah go ahead write whatever book you want to write even if you don't yet know probably what that book's going to be we'll back it which was which was exactly what I needed from a publisher and and then it was a really it was a hard process and I had on the one hand I had a team of people helping me crunch numbers and stuff like that and on the other hand I had to spend a lot of time in remote locations just on my own in sheds for days on end you just (laughs) (laughs) getting my head around stuff and trying to work out how to frame it all up and all that yeah yeah yeah, wow. So it's definitely been a, a challenging undertaking, I imagine. But Oh, yeah. really challenging, really challenging. I mean, to try and get, you know, as close as possible to everything that matters in a 200 and something page chatty read. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yes. Yeah, completely. Um, so kind of continuing forward with what we've been talking about, this sort of multidisciplinary approach to the climate emergency and kind of considering all factors, whether, you know, social, political, economic, etc. Um, I want to ask a more specific question about how does privilege in the kind of many definitions of the term affect, affect your like one's ability to act against climate change? And what can we do to kind of erase those access barriers that people have to acting against climate change for example you know the price of meat versus the price of vegetarian alternatives might kind of bar someone from making those positive changes and I was wondering on how on that kind of individual personal level how you know financial privilege for example affects people's ability to act against climate change in your opinion. Yes another really interesting question so I think so privilege takes lots of different forms I think and my take on privilege is that so I have you know I know lots of people who sort of including people who work in small who work for me in small world who feel as though they sometimes they feel as though they somehow almost have some sense of guilt for the privilege that they've got 
And, you know, and I also have a sense of privilege, mostly because I had such fantastic parents. I mean, you can't have a, you know, that's the best thing anyone could ever have in life. Yeah. You know, and I think the way to view that is not to feel guilty about it, but to pay it forwards. Mm. If you feel like you've been given a leg up or you've been given a good start, either because you've, you're rich or you've had great parents or you've had a great education or whatever it is, then, pay, then, then, that, then that puts you in a position where you are better enabled to go and, you know, enrich, the, enrich people and planet. And that's mm. what you do with your privilege. Yeah. And I, wealth particularly deserves a mention because um, I think uh, there's nothing inherently wrong with being wealthy necessarily. Mm. But the way to view wealth, I think, is that it, you know, some people more than others have a decision about whether to be wealthy or not. Not everybody has that. A lot of us do to some extent have that decision. And if we decide to be wealthy, then that is a decision to be a custodian for more of the world's resource. Mm. With that, so in other words, that decision, that is a decision to take on the responsibility for the management of that resource. Yeah. In the way that the world needs to see it done. So, you know, the world's billionaires need to be pushing all the billions, all their billions, in yeah. the right direction for the health of people and planet. And I don't just mean a few billion of philanthropy here and there. I mean the lot, right? Yeah. And the, and the same goes for, you know, anybody, anybody who owns land has a responsibility to make sure that exactly the right thing is done for people and on that land and yeah. that's a very serious undertaking mm, yeah absolutely so i i've wanted to kind of question you more about that because you placed this kind of emphasis in your book on something that i was really interested in about kind of thinking about the purpose of your actions rather than kind of being moralistic or creating kind of generalizations so for example if you're going to be taking a flight thinking about why are you flying what will do, what will you do there or you know continuing with wealth why do you want to be rich what are you going to do with your money do you think this kind of critical thinking and interrogation of our own motives needs to be something that we kind of take forward yeah it does so one of the parts towards the end of the book i, I talk about is new new thinking skills that we need to get much better at mm. and a lot of them are around critical thinking and not least self-reflection so you know the, the psychology of climate denial um is fascinating not mm. that well understood by anybody really um but it's at work in all of us right we all we all have mechanisms for defending ourselves from 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 looking at things that are uncomfortable to look at and so on and and for talking ourselves into convenient storylines that you know, and so on. And it's so important to try and be as reflective as we can about where we're coming from, why we're getting, noticing the emotional reactions we're getting to things, noticing mm -hmm. how those emotional reactions might be steering our decision-making and our rationality in ways that we're, if we're not conscious of, that it runs, you know, it, it, it just runs amok in, you know, in everything that we uh, think and do so there's that kind of reflective side of it mm. and then of course for the information that we that we receive from everywhere from politicians from the media from the books we read from our friends you know we need to be so sharp on our critical thinking um 
you know, ask, asking ourselves all the time, where's that information source coming from? What's its motivation? What's its competence? What's its sources? <laughs> you know, just mm. what extent is this, uh, is this legitimate information? You know, it's, always, it's always telling me something, but it might not be telling me what it looks like it's telling me at face value. And right down to, and this is, I think this is really important. My, my kids used to get, used to just laugh at me and groan every time I said this, but if we <laughs> encounter adverts on the telly, you know, I used to just always ask, what are they trying to make you think? Yeah. Trying to make you believe. Mm. Why? And just to unpick, not just the explicit stuff, but the implicit stuff. We all need to get so much better. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting thinking about the kind of specific kind of rhetoric that adverts are using um because I was quite interested by an example that you used about the kind of language we use to encourage responsible consumption so we shouldn't encourage people to reduce their energy consumption by telling them it will cost them less because that still orients everything about money and sort of in turn reinforces a wider attitude of overconsumption. do you think we need to be thinking about this environment rhetoric on that kind of yeah. Close a level. So at the moment, the way we think about things is so mixed up. It's like it's so kind of I don't know. It's it's um, so countercultural to be able to talk about doing the right thing purely for the for doing the for the reason that it's the right thing to do. And we mm. are so mixed up, isn't it? We need to get back into a world where we're unembarrassed about doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Mm. And I have this conversation a lot in businesses. And um, and especially actually with asset managers, you know, I, because asset managers can look at, you know, who should they have in their funds? And is this, you know, is this company going to be a climate risk or a climate opportunity for us and all the rest of it? And, you know, perhaps we should divest from this unethical company because, you know, because it's a, a financial risk to us. Actually, that's not enough. That's not enough reason. You should be embarrassed about about investing in stuff because it's the right thing to do and divesting because it's the right thing to do. And we should face clearly in the eye the fact that you can't, you can't in life, in business, you can't maximise profit and do the right thing for the environment and society. Mm. It's not possible. You can maximise value. Mm-hmm. You have to very clearly redefine value to mean more than just money, which of course is a much more meaningful definition of value, right? So yeah. to like about it, it's just that we're somehow locked into this reductionist thing about money that yeah. doesn't do any good as individuals and mm. it crashes people and planet. Yeah, yeah. So this kind of um, really close engagement and interrogation of the kind of information we're being fed and how we're directing our money and value and everything. You know, I think obviously, as you're saying, this sounds very kind of productive and useful, but there is also this kind of counter kind of mental health phenomenon rising almost called climate anxiety or eco anxiety, where people just get kind of paralyzed when they think about the climate emergency and just kind of get sort of completely frozen by the enormity of it. So for those individuals who kind of clearly care about the climate, but just completely don't know where to start, what would you recommend that they kind of do to start engaging with the climate crisis in a more productive way, in a less kind of immediately sort of fearful way? 
Yeah, so it's a really, that's another really smart question to ask because, you know, when uh, we get it that something's an issue, it's really important psychologically, it's really important to have a sense of agency over it, some kind of agency. And yet, if we're smart and we really look at what's going on, we realize that these are big global systemic problems mm. and none of us can single-handedly change it. So it's easy to think we have no agency at all. And especially if you start getting your head around some of the concepts that I talk about in the book, like rebound effect, mm. right? the reality is that if an individual cuts their carbon footprint, the rest of the world economy has a nasty way of adjusting itself, that the carbon just goes to other people's carbon footprint. Right? Yeah goes for business and the same goes for a country and at the end of the day we need systemic change so the the meaningful question to ask is what can i do to help create the conditions under which the systemic change that i would like to see can become more possible and that i think is a much more empowering question to ask and it's not just setting our carbon footprint it's about all our forms of influence, you know, how we vote, how we exert our influence in the workplace, who we decide to work for, even most challenging of all, probably the way we have conversations with our family and our friends, mm. we go to the shops, how we buy things, how we just everything about how we think, the information we absorb, and therefore the influences we subject ourselves to, all these things are ways in which we can help build the conditions for change. And even, and I, you know, the, the updated version of the Planet B included a chapter on protest because I think, you know, we have to have the change and without wanting to sort of give the answer, I think all of us should be asking ourselves the question, and I don't say this with any kind of great delight, but, you know, is it now the time to start thinking about some form of active protest, you know, for all of us, because we have to change and organisations like Extinction Rebellion and Greta Thunberg, you know, it's quite clear they, they have precipitated an element of change. Mm -hmm. One other thing I want to say about individuals trying to, trying to take action is that we've come to be in a very individualistic thinking society. Mm. And in that, in an individual, when we're thinking individualistically, we kind of get into a mindset that says, actually, if we can't solve a problem on our own, single-handedly then we're worthless right mm. this is a collective problem and we don't have to have we don't have to be able to single-handedly solve the whole thing yeah. we have to be it's enough to be able to feel that we are um that we are pushing the system in the right direction as mm. best we can given our, all our human failings right and you know that's all we can ask for of ourselves and it's enough Mm, yeah absolutely so so what do you think the place of um kind of artistic media um so television film literature is in all of this um because i in your book you mentioned some bbc documentaries that you found kind of particularly kind of impactful and kind of precipitating change and obviously these groups like extinction rebellion and individuals like greta thunberg are often kind of using online media as a kind of way to broadcast their message. So, and you know, there's a film been released recently called Don't Look Up, which sort of confronts these, this sort of complete denial that we have of the climate crisis. So I just kind of wanted to ask you 
basically if you think books, films, TV, etc., are a useful way to kind of get people's attention about the climate crisis and to kind of help sort of stimulate people into feeling like they can make a difference as an individual. Yes, I think they are colossally important. Um, you know, we had decades where the science on climate change, for example, was crystal clear and the mm. world nothing about it. The carbon curve st is still only showing the very faintest signs of having, you know, of, of having acknowledged that humans have noticed climate change, right? So, so why, didn't, why didn't we get any change when the science was so clear? It's because, you know, we had decades of very thoughtful, clever scientists in the IPCC and elsewhere, you know, thinking that the way to get the change is to articulate the scientific case ever more strongly. And what's absolutely clear is that that is not enough, right? Yeah. We need to find ways of, you know, influencing our mindset in every possible way. Mm. And cultural influence is, is colossally important. So, you know, some of the things that have happened that give me encouragement is the BBC has dramatically changed. It can go further, but it's dramatically improved the way that it's reporting on climate and other environmental issues, you know, say like it is much more clearly. But it's not just the explicit messages. It's, it's not just about when we tune into a programme about climate change, right? It needs to be the way it's dripped into everything, you know, into the mm. into the comedy, into, um, you know, into the entertainment programmes, not, not, not just explicit messages, but the implicit stuff as well, that it becomes routine that, everyone you see in a drama is now, you know, is now making more appropriate responses to climate change just because it's culturally normal, you know, for example. That's the sort of stuff we need to build up. It needs to be funny. There need to be proper comedians doing this stuff. I think, I thought Don't Look Up was brilliant. Mm -hmm. you know? And it didn't surprise me. You know, the reason why it had such a wonderful star-studded cast is because there are a lot of actors out there, really great actors out there, who get this stuff and realise it's important, and they realise that acting is part of the solution if you do it right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so kind of um, almost a, a new kind of take on environmental activism in that it's sort of pervading into all areas of life rather than it, you know, being seen as something outside yourself or something that someone else will do. Um, you know, something yeah. we all have to take part in. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think this is what I would say. You asked me about people going into careers. Mm. This is what I would, another thing I'd want to say about it is that there are deep implications about the climate and environmental emergency that affect every industry and every business within that industry. Mm. So, you know, whatever you're thinking of doing, uh, you know, going forwards, you can do it in a way that is properly responsive to the situation we're in. And what I would encourage everyone to do is think deeply about what that means, because it's not just the kind of obvious peripheral stuff. If you really think hard and internalize, you know, spend some time chewing over what it would look like to be in a particular industry, doing it in a way that was good for people and planet, given the situation that we're in, then I think that will, that, you know, that is a way of launching yourself into your career in a, in a very new way. Mm. Uh, you know, to get, I'd, I'd like to pick up on like, say marketing, advertising and marketing, right? Mm. So, 
against that per se, but the idea that you would go into a profession or, which is in the business of persuading other people to think and want, you know, to believe, th- believe things and want things, mm-hmm. um, regardless of whether it's in their interests or in the interests of the people and planet, right? That is deeply unhealthy, right? Yeah. And that would, be a, that would be a totally immoral way of going into your career now, yeah. right? Those concepts. Yeah. However, you know, there is a place for going into the business of enabling people to get their heads around these issues, you know, and there's a marketing and advertising, you know, marketing advertising skills have their role in that. Yeah. But it's a different take on it. It's a very particular way of going into that career. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So this kind of um, close engagement that we all need to have with the climate crisis that you're kind of putting forward um, in your book, I wanted to ask you about a kind of specific um, incident in the news in 2020 when Extinction Rebellion was labelled as an extremist organisation. How do you think that will impact people's engagement with the climate crisis and with climate activism? Because I don't know if people will then feel alienated from Extinction Rebellion because of that. Late, I don't know. There just seems like there's a slight kind of discomfort, dissonance with that label. And I wanted to know your perspective on it, basically. Well, there were all sorts of attempts to put Extinction Rebellion down and put them into pigeonholes and, you know, discredit them in all kinds of ways. You know, people were, some people tried to say they're all middle class, some people tried to say they're all loonies, some people tried, actually, if you went along to Extinction Rebellion protests, as I did, you know, you find every sort of person there. You find people, exactly, wearing, yeah. you know, all kinds. Every, the only thing that people at Extinction Rebellion have in common is they care about the planet. Mm-hmm. So, um, extremist organisation, well, the response to that is we're in quite an extreme situation. Mm, Yeah, exactly. I do think it's important to be clever in the way that that protest is done. And I think at their best, Extinction Rebellion were extremely clever. Not least the way their insistence on respecting absolutely everybody, all the time Mm. insisting on that. And, the, and, and also the way that they created, at their best, they really created a, a sense of the better world they were pushing for. They managed that, especially in the spring, in the April protests, when, you know, it was such a good feel-good factor. There, was, there were free meals, there was music, there were talks, there were bookshelves. You could, they were picking up not just their own litter, but everybody else's litter. They were just being nice to everybody, especially the police. It was, you know, it was brilliant. Mm. After that, they didn't get such an opportunity to set up that wonderful environment because the police were hounding them so hard. It was just harder for them. But the intention yeah. was there, and it was, that was really, really important. And I think I would say this. Anybody who wants to be critical of Extinction Rebellion or, for that matter, um, Just Stop Oil or even um, uh, um, Insulate Britain, you know, anybody who wants to be critical, and I, you know, I am, I have some reservations about some of the things that some of them get up to. But I would say this: if you're going to be critical, you need to be able to articulate what your what the more effective response is yeah. that you are already implementing. Mm. Because we have to have the change. We absolutely yeah. have to have the change. And the people who are protesting are saying, well, look, if not this way, how? 
and if not now, when? I, I've talked to people in um, in Insulate Britain who I've said, look, I'm, you know, I'm not sure whether you're doing the right thing or not, actually. You know, this mm-hmm. could do harm than good. And they're saying, we don't know whether we're doing the right thing or not either. Mm-hmm. And we don't enjoy having our hands that are super glued to the street being ripped off by police, you know, ripping our skin off. And we don't enjoy being spat at by the public, you know, and being insulted and all the rest of it. Um, And we don't even know if what we're doing is positive and helpful or not, but we think it probably is. And we have to see some change. Yeah. Um, As well as the climate emergency, there's so much going on in people's lives at the moment. So, you know, with the pandemic and all the negative consequences that that has entailed, for people's personal lives and you know there's anxiety about other global events like the war in Ukraine as well um, so amidst all these other urgent concerns that are going on for people how can we get people to pay attention to climate change too as well as these other things that are going on or do we need to kind of see them as interlinked as kind of all part of the same kind of m- historical moment that we're living in yeah, we need to see them as all part of the same thing, for sure. You know, uh, the pandemic, you know, arguably, you know, it's part, at least in part come out of some, um, you know, possibly some of the ways we're doing agriculture and certainly the way that we've globalised has, and, you know, an extent to which we, you know, means that things transmit around the world, you know, so much that's you know, part of the context we're in. And in terms of what's going on in the Ukraine, absolutely, it's part of it. So, you know, a few months ago, actually, I went to a conference in Kiev um, mm-hmm. and spoke there at this conference. And it was it was all about security and climate change and China and Russia and artificial intelligence and everything else that was thought to have mattered, mm-hmm. you know, all in the room together. And, you know... I, I would say my reflection on that conference and Zelensky opened opened it up mm-hmm. and everybody at the time said, oh, a nice, nice man, but not a very strong leader. So, mm. but, uh, you know, but the, the, the big question in the room, I thought was, can humans cooperate with each other properly on a global scale? Can we able to do that? Or are we going to head for a very nasty place in a short time frame? And there were really, I would say there were two camps. There was there were the neoliberals, who some of whom seem to be taking delight in telling the world how, you know, talking about how untrustworthy everybody was and how, you know, there's no point trying to be nice to any other country because they'll just they'll just take you for a ride. Mm. I think, you know, I wanted, what I wanted to say to those people was take the smile off your face, because if that's what you really think, then it's clear cut, the world's heading for a very nasty place. You know, yeah. in the first half of the careers of everybody leaving university right now, right, would be my prediction for it. And, you know, on the other hand, if, you know, if, if on the other hand, there's good evidence that that is not inevitable. So another person at that conference was Rukta Bregman, the author of Humankind, which mm-hmm. if anyone read that book, you should read it, um, who was making the case that actually humans are very good at cooperation. 
you know, uh, and what I would say is what we haven't yet learned to do is scale it up to the global level. Mm. We haven't yet got good enough at, um, you know, having compassion for people on the other side of the world who we're never going to meet, who come from different cultures, who are never going to say thank you to us personally, directly, right? Mm. Yet, you know, that's the world we're in now. We've learned how to have a global impact and how to have global supply chains, and how to buy things that are made on the other side of the world and all the rest of it. And with that, we now have to, we have to accompany that with a sense of global compassion so that we're responsible to that impact that we have. And we haven't yet, we're in catch up on the compassion side. So in where I talk about eight ways of thinking that we need to get better at, one of the critical ones is global, I call it global empathy. Rukta Bregman calls it compassion and draws a distinction between those two and he phrases and he might be right. But you know, we need to get better at having an emotional reaction that gets us to care about um, you know, the lives of other people on the other side of the world. And that is something we can train ourselves to have. It, mm. That's strong evidence for that. But it is about, you know, we, we need to get our minds used to working in these ways. And, you know, another of those thinking skills is the big picture thinking and the ability to join up interdisciplinary stuff, because that is the nature of the world now. You can't deal with climate change by just looking at climate change. In fact, yeah. the question that we're asking more and more at Small World in my business now is, we're always looking for the points of leverage. And maybe the, maybe the, what we should be looking at is how can the world get better at choosing the right people to be in powerful positions, whether that's leaders of states or chief execs of companies? You know, how can we get better at making sure that the people who are in those positions are kind, truth, kind and truthful mm-hmm. as well? Those yeah. The three characteristics that we just need to get much sharper at insisting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I guess my final question would be, you know, we've talked a lot about how our perspective needs to shift and how we need to start seeing things in a more kind of holistic, multidisciplinary, bird's eye view kind of way. Um, So I guess my final question would be, how would you like readers to feel after they've read your book? What kind of emotions would you like them to feel what kind of actions would you like them to take um just to kind of summarize everything that we've been we've been talking about so far i would like people to feel energized and i think that i think that's a mixture of fear and excitement mm-hmm. i think if we're not feeling scared by what we're seeing in the science and what we're seeing politically then something in our brains just isn't working right. And if we're if we're not feeling, oh my, you know, we're you know we're burying our heads in the sands if we're not feeling fear about that. Excitement because it's not inevitable that humans have to carry on on this trajectory that's leading to such a terrible place. Right? The excitement yeah. is it's actually possible to change that. It does mean absolutely getting off our butts and doing it. It won't happen by accident. It's not the default that we're going to get through this because humans always get through. The default is we're not going to get through it. But it's possible. You know, it's, there's everything to play for. That's what I want to... I would like people to feel there's everything to play for. It can be really exciting. And at the very least, 
I can put myself in a position where on my deathbed, I look back and go, well, I did what I could. And what can anybody else ever ask of their lives? And yeah. we can have a, we can actually have a good time trying because, mm-hmm. um, you know, it feels good to know you're doing the right thing. Yeah. Very, it feels very psychologically healthy to know that you are living your life trying to do the right thing, which, of course, you know, I'm not saying I perfectly do that myself, but, you know, I do know that the closer you get to it, the better your life feels. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, well, thank you very much for coming to speak with me today. I really enjoyed our conversation and found it very thought provoking um, and given me some things to think about in my own life as well. Um, but yes, thank you very much for your time, Mike. It's been great. Thank you. Good questions. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> um, make sure to follow the Cambridge Festival on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube for more fascinating events and follow the Say That Again Slowly podcast for more conversations with experts on body image, time travel, aliens, counter speech and much more. Thanks very much for listening. 